Dennis Stegwell, President of the Housing Innovation Alliance. Glad to have you here as part of our third Tuesday series. This is the first one of 2022. We have a real exciting panel where we're going to get into some core innovations in core building systems with a, a group of entrepreneurs from around the world. Before we do that, and for those of you who may be new to our network, I just want to provide a little bit of background about who we are and what we do. So at the Housing Innovation Alliance, we're all about increasing the availability of attainable housing for the middle market. We do that by leveraging the production home builders scale and volume throughout the marketplace. We're about 200 companies strong and just over a thousand or so individuals driving that change. And we do that by leading market engagement activities, just like the one we're hosting today. All of our market engagement activities throughout the course of the year are made possible by a, a fantastic group of financial supporters. That is our transformation or innovation partners. We want to thank them for the support throughout the course of that last year and look forward to more with them next year. So at the end of last year, we had our future of housing conversation. And in the, in the course of that discussion, we had about a four hour dialogue around how we can paint some broad concepts around where the industry is going over the next three, five and 10 years. In doing that, Greg and I had a chance to brainstorm a bit well, because of Fifth Wall's involvement in those sessions. And, and it was, it's great to have directional guidance, but how do we provide some near-term near solutions that could be adopted and drive that change? So what we wanted to do is have a follow-up beginning of this year to those sessions with a group of entrepreneurs that are bringing those solutions to market. And that's really where we are and how this came about today. So consider this an extension of that conversation and a way to start taking measured steps towards driving real change in the residential built environment. Greg's joining us as Fifth Wall's co-lead on the Cleantech Group. They're one of the largest fundraisers in decarbonization in the residential built environment. So we're excited to have him here from that participation. And before Fifth Wall, Greg was a big part of BMW's iVentures Group, leading their sustainability practice. So Greg's perfectly suited to help guide us to these conversations. With that, Take it away, Greg. Thanks, and uh, thanks everybody for, for taking the time today, and, and also thanks to uh, to all of our panelists. Um, yeah, so just a, a little bit of background here on uh, on Fifth Wall, if we can uh, hop over to these slides and in case any anybody is uh, not familiar with us. Um, Fifth Wall is the world's largest venture capital fund that's focused on, on what we call the built environment, but really think of that as construction, real estate, uh, infrastructure, and more and more so energy, just given uh, how much energy buildings uh, consume. We've got about $3 billion under management, um, and probably what's most interesting to the folks on the line is similar to the Housing Innovation Alliance, the money that we have pulled together here to go and invest in breakthrough technologies for our industry is coming from the industry itself. So we pulled together about 90 of the world's largest owners, operators, and developers of uh, commercial and residential real estate and infrastructure around the world. Uh, there, there are some of their logos up here on the slide. We're across about 15 countries. Um, and just to give you a feel for sort of the size and the scope of the uh, consortium that we pulled together, uh, we account for about 20 to 23% of all of the homes that are built in the US, about seven and a half billion square feet of commercial um, real estate, about one and a half billion of industrial, uh, I think one and a half million hotel rooms, one and a half million multifamily units. Uh, so a very sizable consortium. We invest across a number of different theses here, and we are investing in the next generation technologies to help our industry. We've got a North American real estate tech um, fund that's doing technologies such as you know, software going into buildings. We've got a similar fund in Europe that's doing the same thing. We've got a retail fund, which is doing next generation direct to consumer technologies and, and people for our corporate LPs who own uh, uh, retail assets, for example. And then uh, what's relevant today is that fourth leg of the stool there, climate tech. The real estate and construction industry accounts for about 40% of all of the CO2 emissions on the planet, right? I think if you ask the average uh, Joe Bloggs on the street, who is the big bad wolf industry? And most people would think it's transportation, but it turns out it's actually us, right? It's, it's real estate and construction. We are the big bad wolf. Um, and what is quite shocking for us as an industry is even if we realize that we are the problem, we do not have the technology at hand to solve that problem for ourselves. Meaning even if we go out and install all of the best technology available to us today, use the best construction materials, all of those things, we can only probably solve about 50% of that problem. Um, right, So that is why we think it's incredibly important for us to be, um, as a venture capital fund, investing in new technologies because we need new technologies to solve the other half of the equation here. Um, 
And then also to bring with us the industry at large, because it doesn't matter if we can invent the technologies if the industry doesn't want to buy those technologies, right? So we really do see this as bringing industry and uh, startups together through a venture capital fund. Um, and that's the background there. So just a little bit of, of a, a high level on the folks who are going to be talking today. Um, in alphabetical order, we've got uh, Murdad Majubi, who is the uh, CEO of Orbital Systems. I think you're going to see a, a theme here. We've got a lot of rocket science around here. Orbital Systems is doing um, water recycling systems, uh, and it's technology that was originally spun out of NASA. Um, and uh, uh, Murdad, thank, uh, thank you very much for doing this late night. He's actually in Sweden at the moment. Um, and he has a background in, uh, in industrial uh, design out of Lund University. He's a guest lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of, uh, School of Business as well. Uh, we've also got Arch Rao. Um, Arch is the CEO of SPAN, who uh, makes smart electric panels. Um, in transparency, Fifth Wall are investors in SPAN. We are not investors in the other two companies today. Um, and Arch has, uh, has got a, a very interesting background having uh, uh, survived, uh, I think close on five years uh, reporting to Elon Musk as a head of energy products at Tesla. Um, I had a lot more, more hair before I worked for Elon. I don't know how, uh, how Arch are, uh, you know, still, still has a full head of hair there after so many years uh, working for the man. Um, and then uh, last but not least, we've got uh, Michael Sa uh, Saxe, uh, who's the CEO of Dandelion Energy. Dandelion are working on ground source or geothermal heat pumps for, for buildings. Um, and this is also a very storied company. It's a spin out out of uh, Google's Moonshot Factory or Alphabet's Moonsh Moonshot Factory. Um, and Michael's uh, had a fantastic career in and around the, uh, the energy and efficiency space, um, spanning, I think, close on about eight years at Opower, uh, which is a company that I'm sure lots of folks will know. And he's a, uh, um, uh, a reformed lawyer. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe he can tell us why you go and get a Harvard law degree if you're not going to go and uh, go and use it. Um, so with that, uh, would like to hand it off to, uh, to Arch to uh, talk to us about SPAN. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for inviting me to join. Thanks for supporting our, our adventures. And uh, uh, Dennis and Betsy, thanks for having me on as well. Uh, well, it's nice to meet everybody here. I think the common theme across uh, Dandelion, Orbital, and us is we're all uh, painfully aware, aware of the need for decarbonization. And we, like Greg, have seen that uh, the empirical data points towards us having to rethink our built environment or how we power our daily lives. And that's that's part of the, the core mission here at SPAN. Um, so if support of the next slide here, Dennis. Uh, the core, our, our raison d'etre at, at SPAN here is we, we want to accelerate electrification. Um, electrification is, is the um, uh, exercise of essentially transitioning all of our devices, appliances uh, from, from fossil-based sources like natural gas to fully electric sources. And this is driven by um, the, the belief that if you if we generate enough clean renewable energy, um, then uh, we, we and if you can convert all of our loads from gas to electric, then we could have a uh, largely decarbonized built environment. And uh, having spent the last decade and a half in the energy space in the renewable energy space ranging from wind power generation to energy efficiency to commercial energy metering to then subsequently spending some time at Tesla uh, designing and developing uh, energy storage systems I came to the realization that if if we cannot enable homes and our everyday lives to be uh, less carbon intense then we're really missing the boat here on our effort to to buck the trend on climate change and um, to enable that, if you look at the home as an ecosystem, it becomes very painfully obvious that the home electrical panel is one that has seen very little innovation in nearly a century now. And that uh, is often the bottleneck for customers making that transition to a fully electric home. Um, that's where we started about three and a half years ago. And, and I'm happy to share a bit more about our products. Dennis, if you go to the next slide here. Um, what's been helping us over the last uh, decade, and more importantly, over the last half a decade, is, the, is not just the adoption of technologies like solar, which allow us to generate um, clean electrons on our rooftops, but the adoption of electric vehicles, which actually help us uh, step away from our, our dependency on, on petroleum or fossil fuels for, for everyday transportation, or the ability for us to store those electrons locally with home batteries and then displace loads in our homes with all electric alternatives 
of natural gas appliances. So if you think about it, every day when when you cook, when when we uh, when we heat our water, when we heat our uh, our uh, living environment, we're actually consuming a significant amount of, of fossil fuels. So you combine what we consume in an average American home with how much you drive, that actually represents about 42% of all carbon emissions that, that we see here in the United States. Um, but now that there are technologies like solar, like energy storage, and like electric vehicles that are accelerating uh, quite rapidly from an R&D standpoint we, and from an adoption standpoint, we've seen that the cost has come down and that's, that's now driving a very unique problem that homes are not currently designed to be able to accept the vast uh, or the significant pace at which these technologies, technologies are being deployed in home. And very simply put, it's a problem of the traditional electrical panel was not designed for a home that had a 10 kilowatt or 20 kilowatt charging system for your car. It wasn't designed to have a 15 kilowatt hour or 20 kilowatt hour battery in your home, not to mention, of course, another 10 kilowatt hour solar system on your roof. The largest appliance that was construed of a decade or a couple of decades ago, <coughs> excuse me, was an air conditioning system, right? There was roughly a five kilowatt air conditioning system. So often we found that the home electrical panel is, is something that, that needed to be upgraded or replaced. And that, that became essentially the, the, the hypothesis that we've been proving out over the last few years is if you have to change your home electrical panel, why not make it a more capable, why not make it a smarter electrical panel that provides you both the visibility and the control required to fully decarbonize? Going to the next slide here. Um, and this is sort of illustrated in this very simple line diagram. Um, the, the electrical panel sits in a very unique place in a home and on the grid, right? It's not just the device that sits between the energy coming from your utility and all the energy being distributed within your home. It's also the device that serves as the connection between uh, uh, renewable generation like solar and all of your emerging loads like electric vehicle charging. Um, it's also the device that connects all AC devices, AC appliances like your refrigerators, your, your air conditioning systems, your washer dryers, but also increasingly DC devices like again, your solar system, your DC fast chargers in your home. And it's also uniquely positioned to be uh, a device that can be um, you know, owned or co-owned by a utility, but also provide value to the homeowner. It sits at that physical interface between the home and the external grid. So for a lot of reasons, this, this seems like, to us, this seemed like the most obvious device that was ripe for disruption. And over the last uh, three and a half years, we've been, uh, we've been reinventing the panel to be a whole lot more than just a safety device or a, a fault protection device. So let me tell you about what, what our panel can do today. Uh, Dennis, if you go to the next slide. All right. So what does it mean to reinvent the electrical panel? So those of you that are in, obviously, in, in the construction space that build homes are, are very aware of the fact that this is a necessary part of your, your design stage. It's a very necessary part of your electrical build out. The panel receives a, uh, you know, between 100 and 400 amps of power coming in from the utility. Uh, as its main feed. And then it has a bus bar that then distributes the power downstream to all of the different circuits in your home, be it your lighting circuits, your uh, receptacles in your home and all of your large appliances. Traditionally, this has just been a, uh, a passive analog device with circuit breakers that can trip in the event that there is uh, a, a fault event, like when there's overcurrent being drawn or a ground fault or arc fault that's detected. What we've successfully done is we have embedded into this panel, A, the ability for us to very granularly measure every single circuit, but also to control or turn off every single circuit without having to trip your breaker. What this allows us to do is um, not only disconnect circuits when it's not safe to operate, but also give customers a tremendous amount of flex flexibility in terms of what circuits in their homes are powered when you're in an outage, for example, which we're seeing increasingly often now. What we've also successfully done is embedded this, this panel with what we're calling a grid disconnect. So instead of having to get a whole lot of additional equipment to be able to transfer power from the grid to your on-site local power, we've built into it an automatic grid disconnect that senses when your external grid is either uh, about to fail or about to endure a brownout and then switches gracefully to local power that you might have uh, in the form of solar or storage as the case may be. In addition to that, we believe that there's an incredible opportunity for us to make this sort of the central gateway for all forms of data and energy going in and out of your home. So we, we've placed in it a very capable high-end compute 
that can communicate over wireless, over cellular. So no matter what the state of power is, no matter what the state of your uh, you know, internet service provider is, you're able to always stay connected to your home. You're able to always stay connected to the appliances in your home through our product. I think we have a short video that describes what you can do with it through an app. Uh, one of the incredibly important things to do when building new technology, and I learned this firsthand building products at Tesla, is to make them sexy. And I think our hardware is an incredible improvement over what was not a very um, tall, tall bar to cross with the traditional electrical panel, which is just a gray sheet metal box. But we've also spent a tremendous amount of effort to ensure that the, the, the technology, the software that the customer uh, engages with is really, really powerful. So for us, we have tried to stay away from inundating customers with charts and graphs, but instead focus on the things that matter most. So giving them real-time visibility and real-time controls over what's happening within their home, but also start to engage them in ways that uh, energy management systems traditionally have failed to do, which is give them information that can help them improve their quality of life. For example, what you might have captured uh, in, in the glimpse that you saw in, in the video here is we're now, now starting to identify anomalies in behaviors of devices in your home. So if your refrigerator has a compressor that's about to fail or if your air conditioning system is, has an imbalance in voltage between line one and line two, these are things that we can push as a notification to the homeowner, but it can also be served up as a notification to service providers, uh, be it the, you know, the, the home builder or be it other service providers that the homeowner wants to share that information with. Uh, one other feature that you probably saw over here, which is uh, perhaps the most compelling feature for our product set available in the market today, is um, if you have a storage system, this is the only product in the market that allows you to dynamically reconfigure what subset of your home is powered uh, during that outage event. And this is something, unfortunately, I've endured firsthand about three times this past year when, when in Northern California we had uh, rolling outages, sometimes for a few hours, sometimes for a few days at a time, where it gives me, Span gives me the ability to not just see exactly how much power I have available uh, or how much energy I have available and how many hours and minutes I have available for my battery backup, but also switch uh, to circuits that are important for me to keep on at that point in time, as opposed to every other solution out there today, which uh, gives you only a static certain number of circuits that can be backed up during an, out during an outage. Um, thanks, Greg, for fielding questions as I'm speaking here. I'm obviously happy to come back to some of these questions towards the end as well. Um, so we're really excited about this product that we've had in the market now for uh, for a year and a half or so. We we're actually already in our second generation product, and uh, we're, we're now actively scaling up deployments to a large number of partners, mainly uh, partners that have been deploying solar and storage, but that, that solve for the retrofit market. But uh, one of the reasons why this uh, Housing Alliance call is exciting for me and for SPAN is we're looking to engage with partners as we scale up beyond uh, traditional energy providers to now uh, home builders and service providers as well. Uh, if you go to the next slide, um, so that's the product that we've, that we've had. Um, this is the video again. If, if you go to the next slide, you Dennis. The panel is the product that we've had in the marketplace for some time. Uh, we, we enable uh, a lot of cap functionality, both through the hardware and the software. And by design, this is um, a, a piece of technology that keeps improving over time. So it's designed to receive over-the-air software updates. Uh, it's designed to understand your home better over time. And it gives you complete transparency and control in real time. But thinking about products going beyond the panel, if you go to the next slide, Dennis, uh, we are working on, uh, we just recently announced a home uh, EV charger. Um, and as you can probably tell, like we, we are uh, more than just an electric panel company. We are a company that's focused on uh, enabling homes to be fully electric. And uh, empirically, and just looking at the market data, you can, you can see that one of the first steps that most people take towards decarbonizing is switching from a, a petroleum or a diesel car to an electric car. And that's why we built a device that can pair incredibly well with our panel. That's the, a level two charger. And this is, uh, we announced this late last year, and we're going to be bringing this to market here in just a few months. And this, we think, is an incredibly important piece of technology for every single home. Most customers that want to adopt an electric car are often stymied by the fact, by the cost and the limitations of what their home can offer in terms of a charging infrastructure uh, for the electric cars. So it's not just about having the vehicle, it's also knowing that 80% of these electric car owners are going to charge their cars at home. Uh, we, we designed a product that, again, far surpasses what's out there in terms of home charging. And we think this will provide the best charging experience for the customer at home. And this is attained by doing two things. One, 
Um, because of the amount of control we have both in the panel and in our charger, we can ensure that either retrofit homes or new built homes do not require an upsizing of the service. So you don't have to go from 200 amps to 400 amps just to be able to move to the next uh, you know, marginal electric appliance. And second, because of the fact that we can control every single appliance or circuit within the panel, we can allow you to charge in a much smarter way. So depending on um, how much how fast you want to charge, we could either turn off or turn down certain appliances in your home, and we can apply the same degree of control to the rate of charge through our charger as well. So we think this will be a fundamental unlock for a lot of customers uh, that, that want to move towards a, a more a carbon neutral lifestyle. And we're really excited about these two products. We've got a whole host of other products coming down the pipe and we're looking to partner with, uh, with if you look at the next slide, uh, we, we've got a few hundred partners that are already deploying our product today. And these are, um, these are channel partners that can, uh, that can buy, our, buy our hardware and bundle it to their customers, either as a finance solution or as part of uh, a new build or as part of a solar installation, or in some cases as part of uh, you know, a heat pump installation. And we're looking to expand this network as we, as we try to decarbonize and electrify more homes. I think I'm pretty much at time here. Thanks so much for your time. I'm obviously happy to answer questions that you guys have either now or towards the end of the rest of the talk. Yeah, I think, uh, um, Arch, there are a bunch of questions uh, that folks have, uh, I, I ran out of all of the information I have as not being the CEO of the company. So maybe you can go in there and answer some of the more technical questions. We'll also come back, uh, come back to verbal questions towards the end. Okay, handing off to uh, Michael Saxe for uh, Dandelion. Great. Well, uh, thanks for having me, guys, uh, and excited to share more about Dandelion. Uh, if you could go to the next slide, please. Uh, so Dandelion was born inside Google X, and really what the problem we're focused on solving is finding a source of sustainable heat for homes. When you look at how we heat our homes, it's primarily by burning something. Uh, we burn a lot of natural gas to heat our homes. Uh, in the Northeast where I am, uh, we burn a lot of fuel oil and propane, remarkably even wood. Uh, and then when you look at electricity, uh, um, the electric options have some limitations. So uh, you know, electric resistance heating is really inefficient. And uh, air source heat pumps, which uh, we're huge fans of, uh, but they, they cause potentially grid challenges. We're not built for a grid uh, that is uh, all powered by air source heat pumps. Uh, and they also struggle with extreme temperatures. So if you go to the next slide, please. Um, you know, we've, so, and we see this as something where it's not just us, but it is large institutional players who are looking at this dynamic and changing their strategies. So, you know, for the folks on this call who are focused on, you know, building homes, as I suspect many of you are, you know, one thing I think you should have a strategy for is what do you do when the grid doesn't extend, when the natural gas grid is not going to extend to a new development? And we are seeing that already in parts of the Northeast. The chairman of Con Ed has said, you know, we're not gonna be investing further in these types of resources. And there's a good reason for that. The reason is that, you know, utilities and their regulators expect natural gas resources to earn a rate of return for 80 to 100 years. And I think very few of us believe that we are likely to be using natural gas in 80 to 100 years. So we need to find a new direction. Um, next slide, please. And uh, in particular, for dandelion, that need is uh, most focused within the Northeast. Uh, so it's really staggering just when you look uh, at how many homes continue to or continue or heating their you know, themselves today uh, with fuel oil or propane. There are 3.1 million homes just in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. And if you look at a county by county map, it really runs right along the Acela corridor. These are uh, generally um, in suburbs of large cities uh, where there were huge numbers of homes built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and you know, they're burning a fuel that's very expensive, that's inconvenient for them. Uh, I can tell you a lot of people in the Northeast uh, ran out of fuel oil this weekend. It was quite cold uh, and it's been hard to get deliveries out. 
And then we're seeing as part of that, a broader expansion into uh, it, where utilities are reluctant to extend natural gas. So that's the market that Dandelion's focused on. And if you could go to the next slide. Um, and so really we're, the technology we're focused on is one that's been around for some time, uh, but has never really been brought, uh, brought to scale. And that's geothermal or ground source heat pumps. So ground source heat pumps uh, are known to be the most efficient way to heat and cool homes, but the big challenge has really been the upfront cost. They simply uh, you know, cost more to install and then you see the benefits over the lifetime of the home. So we have, we have made this much simpler for homeowners uh, and you know, our product approach really focuses on three things. If you could go to the next slide. So first is you know, one of the real drivers of cost is, uh, is that most ground loop systems for geothermal are oversized. Uh, the, there's good reason for that because the, so a geothermal system really has two components. There's the ground loop, which is the heat exchanger buried in the ground, and then there's the heat pump, which is inside the home. For the ground loop, uh, you know, most installers just simply don't know what the properties of the soil are that they're digging into. And so they use a rule of thumb. They plan for the worst case scenario, and that leads to a higher cost. We're, we have software uh, that is proprietary to us that is used uh, by most commercial geothermal installers. Uh, and really it provides the accuracy of a soil sample uh, without doing the work. And that allows us to be the low cost provider every time. Uh, and really our goal isn't to compete with the you know, smaller companies that are out there doing this but just bend the cost of this product overall down to a point where we are competing consistently with natural gas. And data is a big part of that. Next slide, please. Um, another big part of that is simply the size of the equipment. So most geothermal systems are installed using wheeled water well rigs. They weigh 50,000 pounds. They have a 43 foot turning radius and they simply cannot access most homes. You need a, quite a large home uh, or a home that has a fortuitously situated driveway in order to allow a wheeled rig onto your property. We have been bringing much smaller equipment. Uh, this is equipment that's not proprietary to us, uh, but it is a reflection of our business model. And really what that allows us to do is get into much more typically sized suburban homes. And uh, you know, this is something where uh, this is the approach that has been, uh, you know, used for a decade in Sweden and other parts of Nor uh, in other Nordic countries. Um, we are constantly pushing the drilling industry to adopt this type of equipment, and we will send them jobs all day long. Um, but it's a really critical component because smaller equipment gets into smaller yards, and half the jobs we sell uh, require smaller equipment. If you go to the next slide, please. And then the last part is really around the heat pump itself. And, uh, you know, traditionally ground source heat pumps, really all heat pumps have been focused on air conditioning first. Uh, they're designed to be installed in new homes. Uh, and you have very large companies for whom this is a fairly small uh, part of the market. Um, we are in the process of developing a proprietary heat pump built from the ground up it's designed to be a heater first. It's designed to look to the home like an oil furnace. So an oil furnace distributes air at 165 degrees. Uh, air source or heat pumps typically distribute air at 110 degrees. Our heat pump will distribute air at 125 degrees with 200 CFM. Uh, and that's gonna make it work in a number of homes where they currently don't have the ductwork uh, to, to fit, with, um, fit with a heat pump. And so that will be coming to market very soon. Next slide, please. I, our approach with customers is that, you know, this is as much as uh, I'm motivated and uh, many others are motivated by, uh, you know, decreasing our footprint. Uh, and having a positive impact. For most customers, this is a dollars and cents issue. Uh, it is a question of, you know, how, how long is the payback gonna be? 
Um, and how does it work for the economics of my family? And really there are two parts that are critical here. You know, first, uh, if you're financing, you save money on day one. Second, if you're paying with cash, it's a seven year payback. And increasingly there's evidence showing that this is resulting in higher home values. And I'll say that for those in the new construction space, uh, you know, we're, we are developing a lease model that will allow us to own the ground loops. Uh, that means that the cost is comparable uh, to, to a traditional HVAC system, and we will just act as the utility for the homeowner. And that's something that uh, we're excited to be able to do going forward. Next slide, please. Um, finally, like, you know, you know, we see this as something where it's got to be uh, it's got to be customer friendly, and uh, you know these are difficult projects uh, to install. Um, it's you know it's easy for customers to have a negative experience. Uh, we're very focused on that, and we see tremendous customer satisfaction scores uh, as a result. And uh, you know really like our and the number one thing actually that we hear is that customers are surprised by how much more comfortable their home feels with ground source heating. Uh, it's hard for us to quantify exactly what is the source of that, um, but we believe that it's a, a reflection of the fact that instead of having you know, a furnace cycling on and off all day long and having very hot air and then it cooling off with lower humidity levels, that the more constant temperature of a heat pump uh, is, uh, is more, more comfortable to live in. Next slide. I think this is my last one. Yeah, and that's it. So thank you very much. Happy to take any questions. Uh, sorry I couldn't offer the dance music that Arch did, but uh, but looking forward to talking with you all uh, over the next hour. Yep. Thanks, Michael. Um, and, and folks, uh, just a reminder: you can you can throw your questions either into the chat or into the the Q and A. If we can't. Uh onto them uh, in, the, in the chat by text. We will be going through them towards the end of this call uh, verbally. Um, and then last but certainly not least, um, Murdad from uh, Orbital Systems, uh, over to you. Thank you, thank you all. Uh, nice to be here. Um, I have tested negative each day the last three days, but I think I have the seasonal you know, flu instead. So my sound is a little bit worn off. Um, Wait, let me see. Can you flip the page, please? So I founded Orbital back in 2012. At the time, I was based out of Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, looking at designing uh, ways which we could sustain an earthly living standard when we colonize Mars. So a little bit background around that is that we don't typically think about the facts that most uh, astronauts are spending time wearing a diaper and eating food through a straw. And, you know, it's, it's doable if you're a professional, you know, up in, you know, a couple of weeks, but if you're going to sustain a complete life on Mars or even just a journey of a couple of years, you would want to have a bit nicer, more relatable lifestyle. So, I was spending my time looking at how we could enable such thing. And one of the uh, methodologies, let's say, uh, when at NASA was to let's look at how we solve these issues on Earth and let's not repeat the mistakes, basically. And in terms of water, which is basically what we're doing or working with, if you flip the page, please. Uh, Perfect. So I think um, in order to understand the massive opportunity around demand side water, the easiest way is to look at the journey we've walked in terms of the energy sector, where just a couple of uh, decades ago, all of the money spent, the engineering, uh, you know, power spent, uh, everything in terms of energy was focused on the supply side. If you were, you know, it didn't matter if you were, a, you, you were a businessman or an engineer, basically your focus was how, to you, how you could increase supply. A couple of decades ago, we realized that it's not just enough to pump up more oil and gas. We actually need to be more efficient about how we use the energy. Similarly, if we look at uh, the journey we've walked in terms of the water industry, 
we haven't really done anything on the demand side yet. The water towers are basically the same kind of principle as the aqueducts that are several thousand years old. And we kind of just passed this buck to, uh, you know, taxpayer uh, funded uh, utilities. And this is where Orbital comes in. We are essentially driving a paradigm shift in what we call the demand side of water. If you please flip the play page. Our first product is the world's first circular shower, meaning that it loops the water in real time. And by looping the water in real time, we can save more than 90% of the water, 80% of the energy use. But most importantly, at the same time, we can increase the user experience. And the user experience in, you know, when using water in our homes can typically, typically be defined in three parameters. Number one, you want to have clean water. In that sense, our water is cleaner than regular tap water. The second one is flow rate, where our flow can be double what is mandated, you know, legally allowed in the state of California, for example, where you have quite a crappy, you know, flow rates due to all kinds of legislation. And the third one is temperature stability, where it's much more precise than uh, regular showers because it's digitally monitored and digitally controlled. Um, please flip the play page. Um, you know, comparing this kind of technology to other similar investments into the home, uh, I, you know, you will see that the ROI is quite different. Uh, obviously, there are a bunch of financing solutions and government incentive models that could come with other kind of technologies. But I think what this slide illustrates the most is that what has what currently has faster ROIs, one example would be LEDs, are not really considered technology anymore. They're just considered, uh, you know, uh, like, it's like it's, they're just taken for granted. And I think also what this slide shows is that we've kind of picked the low hanging fruit in the energy side. And now we're on this long trick of trying to really, uh, you know, climb up the tree, while in terms of the water, uh, we're still flushing our toilets with drinking water, we're still flushing, you know, 50 gallons for a you know, 20 minute shower. So uh, way easier to dig uh, on those on those lands. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so we launched our first commercial product back in 2018. We've uh, seen a pretty significant growth driven mainly by fundamentals like Saving water, meaning you know, saving uh, uh, on your utility bill. If you're a real estate owner, you can increase your net operating income, which obviously is uh, a benefit if you're valuing your uh, real estate portfolio based on your NOI. And uh, in places where you, you can't really trust the source uh, of the water, you know, this will guarantee that there's a clean water uh, all the time. And the main issue we get, you know, the best feedback on is really the user experience. Similar to what I, you know, just heard that even though uh, we're rational, we, we want to believe that we're rational human beings, uh, it's most of the time the emotional uh, response that is, uh, you know, uh, that is, uh, that we're getting the most feedback on. Uh, next slide, please. Um, yeah, so we're launching our second product this year. Um, so what we're seeing is essentially um, doing what I uh, did for NASA, basically um, tying the whole uh, the, you know demand side of water. So we drastically reduced the you know, personal water use on a daily basis. Um, and again, uh, while lowering resource uh, resources uh, use, uh, always making sure we enhance the user experience because as soon as you compromise on the user experience, you're gonna miss out the mass market. And there are tons of solutions out there where you are asking people to be more green or more, you know, you know save more resources, but at a cost of compromise, and then, uh, yeah, uh, they simply haven't really uh, been so attractive in the market. Next slide, please. Uh, yeah, oh, that was the last one. Um, thank you. Happy to take questions.
Fantastic. No, no, thanks very much uh, to, to Medan and, uh, and Michael and Arch. Um, this was great. So uh, encourage everybody to, to throw any questions you have into the, into the Q&A or the chat. Um, but whilst we're waiting for that to happen, I am just going to do a little bit of a lightning round here around um, questions to everybody. Uh, I've, I've noticed a, a bunch of questions that are basically sort of uh, the, the standards on, you know, how much and how many of these things can you make and sort of where are you and go to market. So let's just do a, do a first question. Uh, in, in the order you guys uh, presented in. So, so Arch, Michael, and then uh, Murdad. On commercialization, you know, do you have product in market? Where are you selling? Uh, are you supply constraints? Just, uh, yeah, those sorts of items. Yeah, we, we are in market with our second generation panel. The EV charger will be in market in Q2 this year. Um, we've, we've already deployed a large number of, of panels and we are actually not supply constrained because we anticipated this year would be a growth year for us. And we have, um, we, I think we position ourselves reasonably well um, to, to supply you know, 10,000 to 20,000 systems at least this, this upcoming year, this year, 2022. Um, in terms of, uh, I think somebody had asked about uh, the price, our, our panel retails for $3,500, uh, but needless to say, we, when we work with channel partners, we have a, a channel partner price or a wholesale price if it's a distributor and our EV charger is set to retail for $500 as an accessory to the panel, um, happy to talk more about that as well. When we think about um, you know, new home builds and especially when we're talking about a large number of new homes being built simultaneously. Um, in terms of markets we're available in, we are actually available across the US right now. We've already installed systems in over 30 states um, here in the US, including Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, we are uh, either able to offer it just as a hardware solution, or in some cases, we're able to partner with electricians uh, we have a network of growing network of electrical contractors that can do the installation on uh, on your behalf, if you like. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Um, so you know, we are uh, we are focused in the in the Northeast, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts at present. Uh, we are seeing tremendous demand, uh, and so uh, we do have a, a, a few supply constraints like our you know our year in many ways is largely booked from a revenue standpoint not uh, not unlike what uh, Murdad was uh, was indicating so like you know our challenge is to is to deliver on that revenue um, and so we are extraordinarily focused on on scaling that and then uh, you know I would say that the other thing that we are very focused on, um, you know, is really like expanding our relationships. So like we do, so we have products in market. Um, the heat pump I described is not yet in market. That's something where we have uh, prototyped it, uh, caught like, like uh, tested out the performance of it and are now working with a contract manufacturer to bring that one to market. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd say the other, the other thing is uh, our capacity is greater on the new construction side where there are economies of scale that come into play. And so um, yeah, we are certainly interested in those conversations. Great, thanks. And uh, Madat? Uh, what was the question, Greg? <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's been a while. Um, uh, where are you in terms of uh, capacity? Are you selling product right now? Um, and yeah. where are you selling? Yeah, so we've been selling the last couple of years. Uh, we're mainly selling in Northern Europe. Uh, the pandemic made us uh, kind of roll back and focus on uh, our core markets. I'm currently in Sweden, as you know. Uh, it's an American company, but engineering and HQ is in Sweden. Um, I would say our main constraint or bottleneck would in general be um, installers installers in uh, new regions uh, mainly because uh, yeah i mean i don't see at least for the next couple of years production be a constraint uh, i don't see you know we have more demand that we can uh, then we can find third party installers that would be the best way to phrase it um, and it's not that it's a, a hard product to install but one needs to take you know a constant take into consideration that every project is a, a bigger project than just installing our tech. Typically, it's either a full refurb of a bathroom or it's a new uh, building in general. And uh, because we're not running around installing ourselves, um, there, there are uh, investments into each region we want to be active in. 
before we can get the ecosystem up and you know running by itself so installation and and similar to uh, what i heard art say is like our natural channel partner would would be someone like a solar panel installer or someone that is installing uh, battery packs rather than uh, the classic retailer let's say that is just warehousing products and you know selling uh, eyesight shelves or you know back at the store shelves so um and those uh, i would say are pretty uh, regional you don't find installer firms that are uh, like nationwide or across a co you know complete continent you, you typically find them you know dominant but only within a small uh, uh, city you know either a state or a city or part of a state so um yeah yep great um and then i'm going to take this one in, in reverse um but uh what do you think the real impact of your of your product can be over the next five to to ten years, sort of macro scale, but then also on a micro scale on a on a per you know, home or a per development project sort of sort of basis? Uh, and I'm, I'm Murdad, I'm going to start with you because you are the one who's kind of not energy here, right? And and I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about water, but you know, I'm I'm sitting here on a, on the west coast of America, the town just north of me, Mendocino. This summer, the whole town ran out of water. They were trucking water in, right? So, um, yeah, I think uh, maybe let's start with the water thing because uh, not a lot of people think about this. Sure. So, I mean, when it comes to water, it's, uh, you know, like obviously I'm biased, but I, <laughs> but I, I can tell you that this is pretty revolutionary in terms of the sheer amounts because two thirds of the water is going to agriculture. And that's kind of fine because it's going back into the groundwater and coming back up with the rain or you know, whatnot. About 20% goes into what is called, you know, it's, it's, it's labeled as industry, but that can be anything from, you know, paper plants to jeans manufacturing in Bangladesh to pharma industry. It's really, really broad. About 10% goes into what is called the home. And almost half of that is the shower, and then another, you know, twenty-five percent is toilet and laundry, etc. Um, but that's what I'm just telling you about the averages in terms of, you know, human society. But if you if you zoom in to a city where there's not that much agriculture going on, you know, within the city center, you can imagine how much, and and, and you don't have any paper plants or you know jeans plants within a city you suddenly are looking at 80, 90% of that city's water being used in the homes. And by radically being able to make that water use more efficient, it alleviates the overall stress on the infrastructure. And that's basically where I'm going at, like, because the last couple of hundred years, we've just taken for granted that every person in US is gonna use about hundred gallons a year, a day, and then as urbanization has increased, uh, we've just increased the size of the plants, of the utilities, treatment centers, and, you know, increased tax, increased water tariffs, and, you know, didn't, haven't thought more about it. But like what this will change is that instead of just investing more into the supply, we, you know, we can uh, unlock more by uh, making the demand side more efficient. And uh, that's basically where we're going. Um, and I, I view this uh, as pretty straightforward um, and a win-win solution. But the reason why it hasn't been done before is that it's not a, a, a problem of, you know, like personal fault. It's more of a, you know, system error design flaw that was done, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. And we simply haven't, you know, addressed it since because it's been, you know, run by other people, paid by other people, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, hu huge potential impact here. And and uh, yeah, I also didn't mention I live on a farm with a well and my well was dry all of the summer. So I've been trucking water in. I'm, I'm kind of living on the front end of this. It's like if it's, if it's not fire, I've run out of water and those two things don't go well together. Um, okay, Michael, uh, over to you. Sort of overall macro impact that you think your, your product can drive and then maybe on a more micro scale uh, on a sort of per house basis. Well, first of all, it sounds like Greg also happens to live in a beautiful place. So yes, like, yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so look, like, he, here's how I think about this. Like, there's a lot of discussion, appropriate discussion about electrify everything. 
because and the reason to do that is because you know our electric like the real thought there is we electrify everything then we make the electric grid a lot more efficient and then that becomes the way we get to a sustainable uh, position from a climate standpoint and if you look at um, you know some of the research like some of the stuff Saul Griffith has put together one of the core assumptions in there is that heat pumps are going to double in their efficiency uh, how how are they going to do that that's not an easy thing um, and so like we talked, um, I won't name names, but you know, the uh, senior vice president for planning at a large Midwestern utility, electric utility, mind you, who uh, you know, was like, look, electrifying everything is great, but if we electrify everything uh, with you know, air source or comparable technologies, I need five times the peak capacity of what I have now. Like, that's just not going to happen. They're not going to be able to build five times uh, that five times capacity. So like, the, so we really have to look at this, in my view, from uh, the efficiency standpoint in conjunction with the electrification standpoint. And ultimately, you know, geothermal is an efficient technology because it's exchanging heat with the ground. Uh, so we see it as, you know, if we really want to electrify everything and we're really serious about it, then there's, you know, we really don't see another option. Geothermal uses 20% uh, as much energy to heat and 70% as much energy to cool. That's a big impact. If you want to think about it from a more micro standpoint, there's was frankly a very real life test case. So, uh, you know, last winter, uh, Texas froze. Um, and you know, millions of people lost power. There's a geothermal community down there called Whisper Valley, which uh, some of you may have heard of or been involved with. Uh, Whisper Valley didn't lose power. That's not because they're, um, you know, they were on some separate independent grid, uh, but among other things, they, that's a geothermal community. And when the system operators look at what's going on, they see, okay, I can get, 500 homes over here for a unit of energy, or I can get 100 homes over there. I'm going to choose the 500 over the 100 every time. And so, like, to me, that's how we, you know, that's the calculus that I think everyone is going to end up doing, unfortunately. And then, you know, for builders, uh, you know, it really is just a question of lining up the cost because if you can get it so that the customer is paying in line with when they're seeing the benefits. It's a no-brainer because uh, you know you've set up a system that is more stable, uh, it, that's more stable and costs a lot less to operate. So uh, that that's our perspective. Yep, perfect. And over to you, Arch. Do you yeah, need to refresh I, on the question? No, I think I'm, I, I think I remember. Yeah. Or I'll, I'll pontificate in, in the general sort of direction that Michael and Nadat <laughs> have been doing. So look, I think the 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 general consensus is that it this is an infrastructure problem and i think rethinking aging infrastructure is a fairly complex uh problem to to overcome easily right much like the water supply system hasn't been rethought of in in generations now the electrical supply system also hasn't and the way we rethink it like michael suggested or M michael indicated is you go talk to an electric utility they're going to say hang on a second i'm going to beef up my supply to think about the worst case scenario and that's going to cost me five times as much money as I've already poured into an otherwise failing infrastructure, right? So I think the, the crux of it is we have very unique opportunity, not just as technology companies, but as um, suppliers of homes, right? To address the opportunity directly where the demand is. So homeowners are going to want a few fundamental things. They're going to not want their convenience to be impacted in any way. They're going to want to continue to adopt technologies that they think are neat and cool and sexy. These are going to be electric cars and heat pumps and uh, you know, better uh, shower systems, right? And those things cannot be gated by traditional infrastructure limitations. So the only way to really address that is I think for home, home builders like you guys to sort of lean into it and say, we're going to give the customers the most flexibility. And if you give them that flexibility and choice, cost no longer becomes a barrier, especially when you think about a new bill where you're spending, you know, where we live, a couple of million dollars per home or even several hundreds of thousands of dollars for middle-income households. It's, it's no longer a factor 
when you're saying we're going to put in the smartest piece of technology, like let's say a span panel in your home at the outset, because when you think about the lifespan of a home, like a 30 year lifespan, a few thousand dollars is marginal cost, or in fact, it ends up paying back for itself very easily because you no longer now have to upgrade your entire service just to get that electric car charger or heat pump installed in your home, right? Or that you avoided, you know, even two outages in a five year span and that is, has protected your family in, in a critical event, right? So I think that's how we approach it. And when you, when you look at it from that point of view, there's uh, single family homes alone in the US is about 72 million single family homes. And if we, if we, and if you think about multifamily, now you're talking about north of hundred million uh, homes that can be, in, in fact, should be electrified. And electrification is not a one or zero value proposition. It's not like you're either fully electric or you're not. These are going to happen through different sort of journeys. And that's really what uh, SPAN is set out to do. And we expect to be in a couple of million homes in the next or the course of this decade. And then that's what I'm sure our friends here at Dandelion and Orbital are setting out to do as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thanks, Arch. And uh, actually, you alluded to something here that that I think maybe we haven't touched on, which is uh, multifamily versus single family. I think a, a lot of the the conversation to date has been just about a single family, or, or the examples have been single family. But I know um, the uh, just given the audience here, we do have a significant number of uh, of multifamily folks on the line as well. Um, so uh, if we could also just do a quick run through, and uh, you could give the your applicability to multifamily versus uh, versus single family, and uh, Murda, starting with you. Sure. I mean, majority of our clients uh, or, or the, or the uh, multifamily home, uh, either owners or uh, uh, builders. Um, because, and, and the reason why is simply because um, everything, all the benefits also scales <laughs> with, with, you know, as the building gets larger. So for example, the easiest, most straightforward example I give you is that if you're building a you know your own uh, or you know your own uh, villa and you have a you know 100 gallon uh, boiler if you're putting in an orbital you know systems uh, product you can decrease the size of that boiler you know 10 times because there is no other single product within the home that is in need of such amounts of hot water the same applies if you're building a you know 100 uh, you know unit uh, multifamily home you can decrease the whole size of the hot water uh, system within that. And if you're renting it out and you're valuing your real estate based on the net operating income, which is what at least what they're doing here in Europe, um, the savings, you know, you have the ROI uh, or, you know, payback time, you know, that's one thing uh, that could be slightly longer in terms of a multifamily home because not everybody is taking a shower, you know, every day. Uh, but on the other hand, um, the multiple you're getting on uh, your NOI when you're pricing your real estate, it's uh, you know 20 times, uh, 30 times. And that, that's, so that's one of the reasons why uh, it's been so popular within the larger multifamily home uh, builders. Yeah. Yep, great, Michael. Yeah, um, so you know, ground source heat pumps can't, you know, can be used in multifamily. Uh, and, uh, you know, that right now is not our sweet spot, just to be perfectly frank about it. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, our, our, our success is going to be when we're doing, you know, a few thousand, uh, maybe a 10,000 uh, single family homes a year, but uh, it's, it's 100% applicable. And uh, one of the things we will be considering is whether, you know, if multifamily installers want to use our heat pump in time, then of course, we'll be open to that. I have to say also, I want, uh, I want uh, span an orbital for my house. It's, I love hearing about this stuff. It's so yep. great. Yep. Well, happy to set you up with one of my um, yeah, the question about multifamily, Greg, uh, we, you know, like, like many earlier stage companies, we're, we're starting with this relatively, we started with a relatively premium version of the product targeted at a market segment that, that tends to be price insensitive. Uh, we are now ready, we're getting to that stage of company now where we are ready to start partnering with multifamily builders to talk about how we, we, um, we deploy our Gen 3 next generation product that we're set, up, set to launch early next year which from a project development standpoint might line up well with some of the projects you guys are working on. It'll be a smaller version of the panel, therefore cheaper because most apartment uh, apartments don't require 32 circuits. You're, you're fairly well um, serviced by a 16 or 20, 20 uh, breaker panel circuit. And what's really neat is we're actually designing these 
to also be interoperable. So it'll be a network. If you have 100 apartments with 100 span, 100 span panels in them, they all communicate with one another and, uh, and has that added benefit of lowering your service capacity. Again, very analogous to what Meda talked about, where you can lower the size of the, the large large scale heating system you have for the water, uh, uh, water in, the, in the building. Um, so we'll have a product for this early next year. We're happy to start talking about uh, partnerships now so that we can be lined up to deploy these at scale when, when projects come online. Yep, great stuff. And uh, okay, let's let's maybe do one one wrap question before we uh, before we uh, lose everybody. Um, uh, and this would, would just be kind of a uh, Arch. You started talking about this, but next sort of five ten years, what do you think the the uh, your product evolution looks like? What other products do you have on the sort of more distant roadmap? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, what what can we we look out for in the future from you? Uh, and we'll just go starting with Arch. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to disclose too much of our roadmap, but I think at a high <laughs> level, uh, we, we touched on the fact that we're going to need uh, products that that can that can go into every type of homes, not just single family homes, but multifamily homes as well. Um, there's there's a similar sort of need for electric vehicle charging or having to upgrade service requirements in commercial or at least small commercial facilities. So you can at least think about uh, verticals, market verticals that we'll go into with panel uh, and panel related products. Um, we intend to also have a newer versions of uh, home, home EV charging. Somebody uh, in the chat asked about bi-directionality. I think the ability to be able to not necessarily power the grid from your vehicle, but at the very least power some portion of your home from a vehicle will be an attractive feature. And we, we fully intend to support that um, initially with a, a small subset of OEMs, but over time to be agnostic of the vehicle itself. Um, and then I think we, we see a continued proliferation of large DC appliances in your home, right? Being be it solar generation, home batteries, EV charging, and then, and then some. And we'll enable that both through hardware innovation, but also software integration with existing, existing technology leaders, uh, be it folks like Dandelion or other home appliance and control solutions like you know, Google, Amazon, et cetera. Great, um, Michael. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, you know, we, we think about it really uh, two components. So the first is the hardware and uh, we're gonna be looking at um, uh, improving the ground heat exchange. So the, anything we can do to make that, uh, you know, not less drilling dependent is going to just expand the potential of the market for us. And so that's something we're very, we're doing a lot of investigation around. And then we will be involving, sorry, evolving the heat pump uh, you know, going to a split system, uh, moving components outside so that there can be easier, uh, e easier and easier installation. Uh, that's the way we're looking at it uh, on the hardware side. And then, you know, the other part that I think is important uh, you know, that I've, I've touched on a few things, times is just like, we really believe financing is critical to how everything like this operates. Uh, you know, I switched I switched cell phone carriers recently because my daughter lost her phone and we needed a new one. And at no point was I ever like, I'm gonna pay Verizon $17,000 over the next seven years. It was always like, I'm gonna pay them 160 a month. And like, that's how people are gonna think about these in their home as well. And so, that, so you know, continuing to be creative and thoughtful on the financing side is gonna be a continued focus. Yep, absolutely. And uh, Murad to uh, take us home here sure within five years we'll be like span but for water <laughs> jokes, no, jokes aside no essentially uh so we, we're launching uh, what, what we're doing is um the orbital core has the, has the capabilities of purifying water to uh you know cleaner than tap water it has the abilities to in real time analyze water quality 20 times per second and modifying the temperature, uh, the flow rate. And essentially we, we're launching, first we're launching applications. So, you know, we have the orbital shower now, we're gonna launch the orbital tap, the orbital laundry, but essentially going forward five years or even you know, five to 10 years, it will be the, uh, again, it's not, it's not, you know, that far off what, you know, span is, uh, it's gonna basically be, the demand side management of water. So instead of having drinking water now in the toilet, you're gonna have clean enough water to flush the toilet. Instead of having drinking water when you're washing your clothes, you know you don't need drinking water to wash your clothes. You need clean enough water to get your clothes, you know, clean. 
So basically partitioning the water for the home for each uh, you know, purpose of use. So, and, and so what that makes it possible. So the benefit is that you're gonna have a better experience and less resources used. And, and you can't get there with an app, you know, like there are tons of apps that are, you know, going to guide you or whatever, nudge you, but like you actually need to be in the home, you need to purify the water, you need to pump the water, manage the, you know, thermodynamics. And, you know, with the first product, we've already put in all of the tools. And now it's just for us to come up with modules, you know, basically valves and uh, electronic boards that are connected. Uh, that's where I see Orbital. Yeah. That's, uh, that's great. Well, uh, with that, that is a, uh, a wrap. So uh, first off, thank you to all of our panelists, um, especially for Murdad doing this so late um, uh, over oh. in Europe, um, but very insightful comments and some uh, truly exciting products. Um, and Dennis, back to you. Yeah, no, thank you, everyone. This was, uh, this was fantastic. Really appreciate you taking the time. You did a great job of kind of keeping track of all that conversation that was happening in the chat box. So appreciate you interacting there. Uh, one of the things we will do here in the near future is we'll, we'll circulate, if it's okay with everybody, contact information as, as introductions come through us. And, and Greg, not to put you on the spot, but just to kind of wrap up, we were able to, to fire off to everybody else, but I'd love to hear if you have kind of a, a concise um, key takeaway or an action, let's say a call to action for the industry here in our network as, as they walk away with, after meeting these three entrepreneurs, getting to connect with yourself, you know, what's kind of a, a call to action we can share with our network? Yeah, I think um, uh, Murdad actually said said something very interesting, right? When when you have a more efficient building, typically your net operating costs is is way lower. And most of us, if you know, we're we're um, uh, owners of large portfolios, right? That's flowing straight directly through to your through to your nav, um, and then that has sort of knock on effects through the rest of the market. It, it increases home prices, it increases rents, um, all of these things. We're also seeing pull through from the from the consumer side of the equation, which is your renters and people who are built, uh, buying houses are looking for these sorts of technologies. And they have different reasons for doing it, right? Like Arch was saying, you need a sexy product, right? Absolutely. There's, there's a certain level of sexiness factor in a lot of these things where you can give someone a demo on a walkthrough on a brand new house of, you know, adjusting what, what plugs are getting backed up. And believe me, that's going to uh, allow that house to show very well. So long story short is that many of these technologies that we're seeing in this market are no longer just an ethical imperative. Like on a PL basis uh, for you as a building owner, on a, um, uh, a sort of margin return, um, uh, if you're a building uh, a constructor and just selling homes, um, many of these, these technologies, like the three that we've shown today, um, just make good dollars and cents sense, right? Um, they allow you to sell these buildings for more. They allow you to operate them uh, more cheaply. They allow you to access lower cost of capital, you know, potentially uh, lower insurance, things like that. So long story short, I think we're at a, we're at a bit of a tipping point here where um, no longer is it that we just need to do these things because it's good for the planet. Obviously it is good for the planet, um, but where uh, they're starting to just make a good economic sense. Okay. Great. No, I appreciate that. It's right on. It's all about the, like you said, it's flowing through to the PL now. So it makes it much easier conversation internally. So um, with that, I, I just want to say thanks again and wrap everything up here. Uh, appreciate all of our presenters participating. I pre appreciate Greg helping us line, us line this conversation up. Look forward to all the follow-on content that comes out of it.